The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our scripture for this evening comes from 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. If you want to follow along, you can follow along on page 992 in the Bibles we provide in the pew. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Hear God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. This evening, we have our guest preacher from... Mannheim, PA, just up the street a little ways. Jonathan Shirk, Reverend Jonathan Shirk, is the pastor at Jerusalem Church. Uh, He and his wife, Christina, have four children, so please welcome him. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming. Good evening. It is my pleasure to be with you this evening. The uh, Notre Dame Cathedral has been in the news recently. Uh, When it caught fire, it took three minutes for it to become worldwide news. The iconic cathedral was among the the first buildings in the world to use flying buttresses, those long stone arches supporting the exterior walls. People travel long distances to see the grandeur of Notre Dame. I've seen Notre Dame in Paris, and flying buttresses uphold the grandeur. I've also been in Greece. While in Athens, I hiked the Acropolis. It was an incredible experience, and I saw the Parthenon, uh, which was built over 400 years before Christ. Forty-six outer pillars and 23 inner pillars once upheld a soaring structure which contained almost a uh, 40-foot idol of Athena. Pillars helped uphold the grandeur of the Parthenon. What do you think it means that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth? Paul borrowed from Greek architecture to make a point about local churches. Famed evangelical theologian John Stott summarized Paul's point like this, quote, the purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. Just so the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. Every day, people around us ignore the truth of Christ in order to live in the delusion of their independence, vanity, and self-indulgence. 
People are blind to the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Oh, how the world needs local churches to hold high the beauty and supremacy of Jesus for them to see. Sadly, many local churches are void of God's powerful presence because years ago they stopped upholding the truth. In their drift from Scripture, they forgot how to act in the household of God. And so they busy themselves with empty religious activity without ever realizing God is gone. Local churches must uphold the truth. That is their purpose. That is their life. So here's where I'm headed this evening. As local churches uphold the truth of the gospel for the world to see, the gospel creates godliness in them, which showcases the powerful presence of God. God's presence in local churches is powerful, unlike any other place on earth. And local churches were the focus of Paul's ministry. Paul devoted himself to preaching and teaching the truth for the growth and godliness of local churches. Well, consider who received Paul's writings. The church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica, Timothy and the church in Ephesus, Titus and the church in Crete, Philemon, Apphia, Archippus and the house church in Colossae. Paul was all about the growth and godliness of local churches. Why did Paul sacrifice so much for local churches? Because like nothing else in the world, local churches are the dwelling place of the living God. This is why corporate worship is so exceptionally powerful. The living God is present and the people who really understand this, like Paul did, long for corporate worship. Long for it precisely because they encounter God in a unique way, in a powerful way through the Word and through the sacraments. It leaves us wondering why any Christian would purposefully disregard the powerful presence and provision of God in corporate worship. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul said this, Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, why would Paul feel anxiety for all the churches? Because he was deeply invested in the growth and godliness of those churches. But why? Because he knew the beauty and power of the living God at work in and through local churches which uphold the truth. Paul wrote impassioned and heartfelt letters to local churches in many cities because he believed that as the gospel shaped those Christian communities, God's glory would be manifest in those Christian communities for the world to behold. Understand why 1 Timothy is vital for Westminster. If you are transformed by the truth, the gospel will strengthen you to uphold the beautiful truth of Christ. And in upholding the beautiful truth of Christ, the world will see in you the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. Can you hear Paul's heart for Timothy and the church of Ephesus in verses 14 and 15? I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, even if Paul couldn't be there in person to teach them, he wanted them to know how to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God. It was important for them to see how the gospel shapes a church. Notice Paul said, ought to behave. The word ought is important. It meant God wanted the Ephesians to do everything written in this letter. It was their duty and it was their delight. Paul mixed doctrine and application throughout 1 Timothy. Why? Because the gospel produces conduct fitting to the glory of God. Right doctrine is inseparable from right living. Or you could say orthodoxy is inseparable from orthopraxy. When the gospel is the center of church life, it shapes church life. Paul's imperatives flow out of the gospel at work. We must first understand what God has done for us in and through Christ. Receive it by faith. Be fundamentally changed by Christ. And then because of who we are in Christ, the gospel leads us to our ever-increasing lifestyle of godliness. When we understand that in Christ we are God's adopted children, then we are free to live like it in God's house. Paul instructed Timothy because Timothy was a pastor charged with helping the church at Ephesus apply the gospel to church life. Gospel-centered leadership and oversight is central to the growth and godliness of a local church. That's 1 Timothy 3 earlier on. Paul understood what a local church is, and that's why he devoted his life to local churches. Do you understand what a local church is? A local church is the household of God. Household can mean a family unit uh, or a house structure or maybe both, but either way, they are closely associated meanings. Uh, A household included the family. There are servants and sometimes extended family all living together. This meaning of household is throughout Scripture. Paul used household this way twice before in chapter 3 in regards to an overseer managing his household well. The household of God is God's family. God is the loving Father. Jesus Christ is the eternally begotten Son. The Father pursues sinful and guilty and miserable children of wrath and through His only Son, through grace alone, adopts them into His household to live as grateful children. Paul told the Ephesians in his earlier letter, God has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. A local church is an expression of God's family. The other possible meaning is that God's people are the house structure in which God dwells. As He graciously saves people, He assembles them in order to dwell in them. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, that they are members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells in, and every, in every believer. 
individually. But Scripture emphasizes that it is when we gather for worship that we are the household of God or the holy temple of the Lord, or a dwelling place for God. The living God's presence is especially powerful in gatherings of local churches. The preposition in emphasizes this, in the household of God. To behave in the household of God assumes Christians assemble together. The corporate nature of the Christian faith is obvious in Scripture. Dr. Ligon Duncan, you may know his name, is is a well-respected PCA teaching elder. He explained it like this, wherever the people of God are gathered, the local congregation of believers assembled, whether it's in a beautiful sanctuary or whether it's in a parking lot or whether it's on a hillside or whether it's in a valley, there, when the people of God are gathered on the Lord's day to meet with Him, they are God's house. Think of it. God is is in the house. God is in the house. And as we assemble for worship, we are God's house. And God's house rules are best, hence the importance of 1 Timothy. A local church is more. A local church belongs to the living God. Notice in verse 15 that the household of God is the church of the living God. Ecclesia, or church, refers to the assembly of believers. And on this side of heaven, that's local churches. These assemblies or congregations belong to the living God. The family is His, the house is His, and He is alive in His family, alive in His house. He's not dead like the idols of false religion. There are many dead houses of worship precisely because the living God is not there in one sense. But God is living here, right now, dwelling in this gathering. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians rather, 6, verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. From a craftsman's hand, or maybe a factory floor, a statue is shipped, delivered, and bowed to in worship, and it is dead living beings falling in worship before something that is dead, before dead idols. How foolish. How can anyone have relationship with something dead? How irrational to worship dead things when there is a God who communes with His worshipers. The living God loves His people, protects His people, provides for His people, leads His people, and communicates with His people. I want a living God. Don't you want a living God? The sons of Korah sang, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Don't you want a living God? A living God who communes with you. Brothers and sisters, every day you commune with this living God. Every Sunday you have the opportunity to join corporate worship and to encounter your living God. Wow. Wow. I think we all underestimate what happens every Lord's Day. We may justify our apathy or boredom a thousand different ways, but the reality is that we underestimate corporate worship because our view of God is too small and our expectations of what the living God will do in us is too low. 
God is here to satisfy our deepest longings with His presence, to strengthen us with His Word and sacraments for 10,000 different sufferings, to sustain us in our weaknesses, in our failures, in our afflictions. And though our priority is sometimes elsewhere, God's priority is communing with His people and pouring out His grace and pouring out His blessings upon them. When we know that, and taste the presence and power of God in corporate worship, we naturally want more. It is the presence of God that makes us want to commune with God and His saints. The NFL may think that they own Sundays, but there is no power in their packed stadiums of worship. And I'm not hating on football. Go Steelers! But stadiums are empty and powerless churches. In Ephesus, there was a temple of the goddess Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high with more than 127 towering pillars. It was amazing. Yet there was no life in it because God was not communing with His people there. Dr. Philip Riken said, the goddess in the temple was nothing more than a dead idol. By contrast, Paul wanted to remind the Ephesians that the church of Jesus Christ is the real temple. The living God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. He lives among His people, especially in their public worship. Whenever Christians gather for prayer and praise, for word and sacrament, God takes up residence among them. To put it in the vernacular, God is in the house. End of quote. I like that, Riken. God is in the house. And as God fills the house of His people, He strengthens them to do something that no other group can do. A local church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Think of Notre Dame. Think of, of the Parthenon. Buttresses, pillars. It's not that the truth is weak and needs our support. It's not that the church is the foundation of the truth in the sense that the church determines truth or that the organized truth, uh, church or church history is an equal authority to the truth as Roman Catholicism falsely assumes, but rather local churches exist all around the world to hold high the truth of the gospel so the world can behold its grandeur. John MacArthur very helpfully noted the church has the stewardship of Scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to secondary place, or abandon biblical truth destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. Well, that's right. Why are so many churches dying? So often, brothers and sisters, it's because they've upheld something other than the truth of God's law and gospel. The tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, 2,722 feet high. That's over a half a mile high. 
Google it. It's unbelievable. It's a beautiful thing. It, it almost looks fake when you look at it. And beneath that beautifully imposing building are 192 piles or underground concrete and steel pillars. They're buried around 164 feet deep. Why are they there? To make sure everyone sees the grandeur of the building above them. Local churches exist to uphold the truth of the gospel for the world to see. And all that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy is aimed at helping local churches do just that. Everything written in 1 Timothy is critical for local churches in their role of displaying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sound preaching upholds the truth. The sacraments uphold the truth. Confronting false teachers upholds the truth. Church discipline upholds the truth. Evangelistic praying upholds the truth. Proper roles for men and women in the church uphold the truth. Biblical oversight by qualified and called elders upholds the truth. The care and servanthood of qualified and called deacons upholds the truth. And you get the idea. Each of us plays a role in all of us upholding the truth together. Now, if the stones of the flying buttresses of Notre Dame are all scattered across Paris, they still might find some purpose. But when they are assembled together, they are powerful to uphold the grandeur of the cathedral. I'll close this point with another great quote from Dr. Ligon Duncan. Uh, so listen closely. It's long, but it's very helpful. Paul is saying that the local church is the place that God has appointed to be essential to the propagation and protection of the truth in the world. Paul's saying there can be no lone ranger Christianity. You can't be off on your own, you and Jesus and your Bible, and expect for the truth to prosper in your life. We need one another as believers. We need one another as encouragement. We need to see one another's lives. We need to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of other believers to encourage us to love and good deeds. We need to be saying the Word to one another, memorizing the Word with one another, hearing the Word of God together, serving the Word of God together. Together, the church serves as the pillar and support of the truth in the sense that it is essential it is God's essential vehicle for evangelism, for discipleship, for missions, for the defense of the faith. Paul is just pointing out that the church is absolutely crucial. It is vital in preserving and propagating the gospel. It is the local church. Paul is saying where God meets especially with His people in the New Covenant era, and it is the local church which is the essential instrument through which God propagates His truth. End of quote. Ligon nailed it. And the effect of upholding the truth is wonderful. Wonderful. The gospel alone creates growth and godliness in a local church. Look at verse 16. Paul used the phrase mystery of godliness. What does that mean? Well, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, however, I think the mystery of godliness refers to Jesus Christ and then the godliness He graciously produces in his people. So let me explain. In 1 Timothy 3, 9, Paul referred to deacons holding the mystery of the faith. That mystery refers to the doctrine of the Christian faith. 
And then the word Eusebia, or godliness, appears in the New Testament 15 times, eight of which Paul used right here in 1 Timothy. Here's what I think godliness means. Godliness is believing the right things which results in doing the right things. Or maybe a better way to say it is like this. Godliness is godly identity demonstrated through godly activity. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the quintessential illustration of godliness. He is the mystery of godliness revealed. Paul said that's a great and uncontestable mystery. It's great. It's mega. It's huge. And when Paul says we confess, he means the mystery is an uncontestable reality. It's obvious now. The mystery of godliness has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To strengthen this view, right after Paul used the phrase mystery of godliness, he said he was manifest in the flesh. Another way to translate the Greek would be great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness who was manifest in the flesh. Many scholars understand verse 16 to be an early Christian hymn that summarizes the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the gospel, which is the truth that local churches are to uphold. And this gospel truth upheld and believed in a local church is what produces godliness in that local church. How sinners transform from wickedness to godliness is a great mystery. But the mystery is unveiled and explained in the person and work of Christ, which verse 16 summarizes. Paul has just said that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth. And then in verse 16, Paul summarizes the core of the truth that the church upholds and in which the church finds its godliness. Number one, he was manifest, manifested in the flesh. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, became human, and we see the fullness of God in the man, Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The mystery of godliness was manifested in human flesh. Number two, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness by the Spirit. The Spirit's power in Christ's righteousness vindicated the identity of Jesus. But even more, when the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he vindicated the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ. Romans 1 verses 3 and 4 confirm this thought. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The spirit's resurrection of Jesus proves that he was the Christ, is the Christ. Number three, he was seen by angels. Angels were at the scene of the resurrection. Angels watched with the disciples as Jesus ascended into heaven. The resurrection is corroborated by angels. That's amazing. But there's another fascinating possibility here. The word for angels is also commonly used of messengers. Paul could be referring here to the apostles who were messengers of the gospel sent out to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. Not only 
have angels seen, but the apostles have seen Jesus alive. The resurrection has both celestial and temporal eyewitness testimony. Well, whatever Paul meant, it's a wonderful phrase. Number four, he was proclaimed among the nations. The apostles preached the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to the nations. They announced it. They advertised it. They got the word out. It began in Jerusalem and it spread to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was Paul's life. It was his work. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel has been preached among the nations. Think of it. The gospel has been preached. It was launched from Jerusalem, accelerating through the ages to even Lancaster County. Local churches are still proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Number five, he was believed on in the world. As the gospel advances among the nations through preaching, many people trust in Christ. The book of Acts powerfully details this. It's, it's still happening. Look around you in this room. You, you are all evidence that preaching works. We are part of the fulfillment of verse 16. Number six, he was taken up in glory. Paul seems to backtrack here a bit by referencing Christ's ascension. It may seem out of order, but I think it works. Jesus was taken up in glory to sit at the Father's right hand in power and authority. He is exalted as Lord. Paul ended with the glorification of Jesus Christ, His preeminence, perhaps alluding in some way to His final return in glory. In a few short lines, Paul gave the gospel. Jesus Christ... The crucified and risen Lord is the mystery of godliness. So, how can you tell that God is present in Westminster Presbyterian Church? Simple. Westminster will uphold and champion the gospel which will actively produce godliness in people. If Westminster proclaims the truth but isn't being transformed into the likeness of Christ by the truth, it's a big problem. Truth and transformation together display God's powerful presence. Are you experiencing both at Westminster? Brothers and sisters, is Westminster a strong pillar and buttress of the truth? Is Jerusalem church... Is the gospel producing greater godliness in our respective churches? Is the living God in and active in our churches? Each of us, each of us here tonight falls horribly short of the glory of God. We all struggle deeply with sin. No surprise. But the living God is here to meet us in our weakness and to give us marvelous grace and power. The living God shows up every week to be with you, brothers and sisters, to love you, to care for you, to feed you, to strengthen you, to help you, to lead you. He's producing beautiful things in Westminster. Beautiful things in Jerusalem. Can you see those things? Are you grateful for those things? Are you excited about what the living God is doing in your midst? 
You see, as we uphold the truth of the gospel together for the world to see, the gospel will continue to create godliness in us. And your godliness and my godliness is going to showcase the powerful presence of God. Nothing will satisfy you more. Nothing will satisfy you more than the powerful presence of God. Nothing. So let us uphold the truth together in godliness. No one else will. God called His church to do it. We must do it together. And we must do it faithfully by His grace and by His beautiful and powerful Holy Spirit. Father, I thank You for this word from Paul. Your Spirit inspired it, and I pray that we would hear it with faith, that we would look to Christ and expect Him and His presence here by His Spirit with us in our local churches, empowering us to uphold the gospel for the world to see. Thank You so much for using broken vessels and for giving us Your miraculous and supernatural grace to use us in the great gospel ministry, God. I pray that Westminster and Jerusalem Church would be faithful to uphold as, as a pillar, as, as buttresses of the truth. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers, and may your spirit be alive and well in our churches. In Jesus' name, amen.